to look. Haggai chapter 2, verse 1 says this. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? That is the first temple. And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations and the, des- and the desirable things. And I will fill this, excuse me, and the desirable things of the nations shall come. We'll talk about that portion of Scripture in just a moment. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, O Lord, I ask uh, right now that Your Holy Spirit would help us to comprehend Your Word, that You would guide us, that You would speak through me, Father, I ask that you would help to communicate your truth to the people of Coast Bible Church. And that, fathers, we learn from some of the mistakes that the Israelites may have made. I pray, Lord, that we would not repeat these mistakes, but that instead we would look and trust you and not trust with our own eyes. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Take a look at verses 1 to 3 one more time. It says this, In the seventh month, On the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel and to Joshua and the remnant of the people, saying this, Who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Now let's take this verse by verse here. Starting in verse 1, you'll notice a date there. Seventh month, 21st day. Now, if you look at chapter 1, verse 15, at the end of chapter 1, verse 15, you'll notice this is the second year of the reign of King Darius. We know, according to this date, this is 520 B.C. And uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, we see a, a time period that is about one month after the Israelites began rebuilding that temple. So it's been one month since they resumed work on the temple. Now this date is significant. Seventh month, 21st day. It's very easy to gloss right by these kinds of things in the scriptures. But friends, this date is tremendously significant. You know why? Because this date marks the last day 
of the Feast of Tabernacles in the Jewish calendar. This date, the seventh month, and the 21st day of that month, marks the final day of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, one of Israel's most precious feasts. You say, what is the Feast of Tabernacles? Great question. Let's turn to Leviticus 23. Take a look at this. And I've selected it. I've I've parsed it up a little bit, but we're keeping it in context. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. So we're talking over almost a thousand years removed from the time that we are looking at in Haggai. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles. That's the beginning of it. Also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. Fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one. Verse 42. You shall dwell in booths, that is tents or tabernacles, for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths or tents that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. In a nutshell, this is the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a commemoration. It was a celebration. It was a day of thanksgiving for what God had done to the Jews as they left Pharaoh in Egypt. When they left Egypt, they spent 40 years in the wilderness dwelling in tents, in tabernacles, in booths. They ate on the land. They ate manna from the Lord. They were 40 years in the wilderness. And God sustained them in those tents, in that temporary dwelling place, and brought them in 40 years later into the land of Israel, into the promised land. And so when they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, they were looking back and saying, Lord, thank You that You brought us from a temporary dwelling place into a permanent dwelling place. Lord, thank You that You took us out of slavery and captivity. And even though we spent 40 years in tents, it doesn't matter to us because today we have a permanent dwelling place. In Israel, your promised land. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. Now today, friends, um, many Jews today celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, most practicing Jews do. And in fact, if you have Jewish friends, you will find, by and large, that many of them will take this week off and go on vacation. And they will literally go out and they will camp. They will dwell in tents as a commemoration of what has happened with their people in 1500 B.C. So this feast is still very significant. Uh, One other uh, little tidbit about this feast that is also very interesting, I find very interesting, in Zechariah 14 and also in Ezekiel chapter 45, you will find two references to this same feast being celebrated in the millennial kingdom of Christ. That is to say, all the nations of the world, you and I, in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, we will also celebrate this feast. 
the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, notice the irony. It is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It is the last day of a week of celebration of God taking them out of slavery, giving them a temporary dwelling and ultimately a permanent dwelling place. Notice the irony. The people of God are looking at this temple and they're starting to complain. They're starting to moan. They're starting to say, look at this. It's not as good as the first one. While the Feast of Tabernacles was a time to recall their humble beginnings in Egypt and their wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, rather than praising God for their permanent dwelling in Israel now, rather than praising God for bringing them out of Babylon as He also brought them out of Egypt a thousand years prior, rather than thanking God and concluding the feast in an honorable and worthy manner, instead, these people look upon their permanent dwelling place, look upon the permanent temple that they're building, and they whine. That date is very significant, friends. Haggai is preaching on a day in which the people of God should be celebrating should be praising God, should be saying, look at this permanent dwelling place we have. Look at how God has blessed us. And yet they look at the temple and they say, oh, it's not as good as the first one was. Verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? Now remember we said that 586 was the last year of the first temple's existence, and today we're at 520 B.C. in Haggai's prophecy. Let's assume that they were, there were some people that were four years old in 586. By 520, they were 70 years old. Haggai is speaking to people who are 70 years old and older. These are the people who are whining, who are moaning, who are complaining. It is the elders of the people. It is the widows of the people. It is those 70 years of age and older who are looking upon this second temple and whining. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with the first temple, is this second temple not in your eyes as nothing? You know, how often uh, do you... Do you know people who do this? I remember the good old days. And I remember Solomon's temple. Boy, was it glorious. I remember it was bigger, better, and more beautiful. This temple here is nothing like we once had. I remember the good old days. I remember when gas cost 15 cents a gallon. Three bucks now. I remember when a movie and a popcorn cost 25 cents. Lucky to spend 20 now. I remember when a candy bar cost a nickel, but boy, 50 cents now, maybe even a dollar. Moan, moan, moan. Gripe, gripe, gripe. I remember the good old days. Are you like these people? 
Do you have a tendency to remember the good old days and moan and bemoan the present circumstances of your life? Friends, I'd venture to say there have been better days in the life of Coast Bible Church than even today. Does that mean we should moan and complain and whine and say, oh boy, we're a small little church. I remember the good old days when we had 400 people in here. Is that the attitude? Don't trust your eyes. Don't trust your eyes, God says. 520 B.C., He's telling the people of Israel, don't trust your eyes. Because what you think is weak, what you think is insignificant, what you think is irrelevant, I'm going to do some amazing things in. Take a look at verse 4. 4 to 5. He says, Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted, covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Three times. He says, be strong. He mentions it to three different people. Zerubbabel, who was the political leader of Israel at the time. Joshua, who was the spiritual leader of Israel at the time. And to the remnant of the people, to the people who have come to build this second temple. He's saying, be strong. Those of you that know your Bibles, is very reminiscent of Joshua chapter 1, in which the Lord tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not fear, for I am with you. Be strong. Be strong and work. Why? For I'm with you. The motivation to work, friends, take a look at this in verses 4 and 5. The motivation to work was God's promised presence. I say again, the motivation to work, to build God's temple, was God's promised presence. Today, our motivation to work for the Lord is also found in God's promised presence within us, the Holy Spirit who stirs us up toward love and good deeds. We are motivated to work because of the Spirit of God within us. Those of you who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you this very moment, and He is within you, stirring up love and good works, motivating you, if you would but rely on Him for it. This same stirring up, this same and similar kind of, of rousing, of motivation, is being exemplified here in verses 4 and 5. God's saying, my presence is with you, and so work. The word people of the land, the term people of the land in verse 4, take a look at that. That's a technical word, actually. It's uh, an unusual word that Haggai would use here. Speaking on behalf of the Lord, though, the Lord's using this word. That word means free citizens. It means you're not slaves anymore. Remember? It means you're no longer in Babylon. And he goes on to remind them, you're no longer in Egypt either. Take a look. He says, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you, so do not fear. He says, you've been liberated. You from Babylon. And a thousand years prior, your ancestors from Egypt. You've been liberated. You've been freed. 
My presence is with you. Now get to work. There's no reason to fear or become dismayed. There's no reason to listen to the elders and the widows and those in your society who are telling you, I remember the good old days. Don't pay attention to that. I'm with you. You work. And in an effort, in an effort to instill an even greater measure of confidence, an even greater measure of motivation to the builders of the temple, the Lord gives Haggai an additional prophecy of hope. This prophecy of hope concerns the significance of the temple they were building. They were trusting their eyes and they were looking upon it and saying, how can this temple possibly be as glorious as the first? And yet God is about to tell them in verses 6 to 9, you just wait. You just wait and watch what I'm going to do in the temple of God. Take a look at verses 6 to 8. Haggai 2, 6 to 8. You're going to notice a change in translation here. We're going to discuss that. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while. I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desirable things of the nations shall come. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. Now we come to a very perplexing uh, portion of the text. And um, I say in advance, this is going to be technical. Hang in there. Uh, pay attention to this because this is tremendously important. It helps you. As you understand verses 6 to 9, this is going to help you recognize the significance that Haggai saw for the second temple and also for a temple that would come after it. So pay close attention as we go through this portion of Scripture. You'll notice in verse 7, he says, I will shake all nations, and I've written up there, the desirable things of the nations shall come. Now this verse 7 has been translated in a variety, I say a variety of different ways. Take a look at the variety in Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. Next slide. New King James Version, okay, at the very top, which is normally the version that we use. And I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the capital desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory. What you see in the very top is a uh, is an interpretation by the translators. They are saying that this desire of all nations is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And thus they capitalize it. They say this is a messianic prophecy and so they capitalize it. Take a look at the next one. The New American Standard Version. Some of you have that version. I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory. ESV, English Standard Version, a newer version, a very credible one. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory. And the ever-popular NIV, I will shake all nations and the desired of all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory. As you can see, we come across a very perplexing verse. You say, what to do about it? Well... Um, you should know up front that uh, Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, and of course the translators of the King James Version took this as a messianic prophecy. They looked at this original Hebrew and they saw in it a reference 
to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would come and fill this second temple with glory. And thus, you see the capital letters, desire of all the nations. Unfortunately, the vast majority of biblical scholars in both prior to Martin Luther and the King James translation and after Martin Luther and the King James translation have disagreed with that assessment. The vast majority of Bible scholars would argue that this is not a reference to the Messiah. There's a couple things that, that demonstrate that. First, you see the preposition to at the, in the New King James. It says, they shall come to the desire of all nations. They shall come to the desire of all nations. That word to there is not in the original Hebrew. And so the New King James is amending that. They, they're, they're adding that to clarify the text. You'll notice that none of the other texts has that. In fact, the more literal translation would be, it comes in rather than comes to. Okay? Come in. Something's coming in rather than something coming to. But there are more reasons, and I want to take, uh, I want to walk you through three other reasons why Haggai chapter 2 verse 7 should not be considered a messianic prophecy. Number one, take a look at this. Number one, the Hebrew verb come, okay, we just mentioned that, is plural which indicates that multiple things are coming to the temple in Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. Not one thing. Multiple things are coming to the temple in Haggai 2, 7. Can't get around that one. Number two, the reference to the silver and the gold in verse 8, the very next verse, should lead us to understand desire in terms of desirable things or treasures. Thus, you see my translation on your outline. Um, they shall come, uh, they shall, how have, I, how have I phrased it? The desirable things of the nations shall come. Okay? Um, the silver and the gold indicates that this might be the multiplicity of things. Maybe it's a multiplicity of wealth. And so that might be a good indication of what it is. But third and finally, and this is the kicker for me. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was translated in about 200 B.C., okay? the Greek translation of the Old Testament understood Haggai to be speaking of the choice portions of the nations. In other words, the earliest Greek manuscripts which chronicled the Old Testament scriptures in, in the new Greek language read the Hebrew and understood it to mean choice portions, a multiplicity of things, perhaps wealth, treasures, um, something of value that is coming into the temple. Now, I want to pause right there just for a moment and say, you know, is this problematic for us? Uh, should we, who should we, who should we trust? The New King James Version or the other ones? Which scholars are right? Martin Luther or, or many of the others? Friends, I want to say this. Don't abuse the scriptures just to make a messianic prophecy. Don't pull scriptures out of context just to make it fit and make it appear that this might be a prophecy of Jesus Christ. In my assessment, this is not a prophecy about the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, I think Haggai is going to mention it very soon. But I think that based on the context, what's coming into the temple is wealth. What's coming into the temple is a multiplicity of things. What's coming into the temple, according to the translators in 200 B.C., and many others thereafter, and many today, is a multiplicity of wealth and treasure, silver and gold. 
And we should not twist the Scriptures just to make another Messianic prophecy. Friends, there are plenty of those. I could, I could show you dozens of prophecies about the coming of Jesus Christ. So that is not, this is not to uh, discredit Messianic prophecies. Instead, this is to emphasize, hey, what is the Bible really teaching here? Is it really teaching that Jesus is coming or that a multiplicity of wealth is coming? So be aware of this, friends. There is still debate on this. If you disagree, that's okay. Uh, we're not going to come down hard on that. But, uh, but I think that there's good reason to believe that this is not a messianic prophecy. So what is coming to the temple? I digress. What is coming to the temple? Silver, gold, treasure, the wealth of all the nations. The Lord is prophesying through Haggai that the choice portions of the nations are going to be brought to the Lord's temple. Now return to verses 6 to 8 and take a look at the word shake. Okay, Take a look at this word shake. Verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, and I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desirable things of the nations shall come, and I will fill this temple with glory. Friends, this word shake is a, uh, should be ringing a bell to the ears of the people in 520 B.C. who heard it. This word shake is of particular significance because any time you see in the Old Testament Scriptures and in the New a reference to earthquakes or cosmic disturbances, any time you see a reference to these kinds of things, you can be sure that this prophecy most likely in some way relates to the second coming and final coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like so many Old Testament prophecies preceding it, what we find in Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 to 9, is not merely a prophecy of what the second temple is going to see, but it is also, moreover, a prophecy of what is going to be coming in the final temple of God. Take a look at what I mean. I've given you a diagram to kind of illustrate this. Now, on your sheet, Haggai's prophecy of the temple, verses 6 to 9. This is what Haggai is doing, I submit to you. He is looking at the second temple. And he's speaking the word of the Lord. And what he is speaking applies to the second temple. But moreover, and beyond that, he is looking further and seeing a final temple of God, of which the second temple is but a type or a reference or a prototype of, And he's looking to this final temple of God, the millennial temple, which Ezekiel describes, and we're going to see some other texts which describe it. And he's seeing the glory of this temple. And he's describing in his prophecy the glory of the final temple of God. We're going to see him referring, we're going to see how the referent goes to both temples in just a moment here. So as, as, as you see that arrow, Haggai is looking through the second temple and past it to a final temple of God. And friends, this is very common in the Old Testament. Uh, if, you, if you go online and check out um, some of the messages I preached in December of last year, we see this happening time and time again. There would be one referent to the prophecy, and then there would be a final referent to the prophecy. A type and a final fulfillment. So... 
Now back to the text. Haggai is mentioning here a few things that coincide with the shaking. What is coinciding with the shaking? There are three things. First, the wealth of the nations are being brought to the temple. Second, there's a shaking of the nations. And third, there's a filling of the temple with glory. Three things, friends. Earthquake, wealth of nations, and glory. Earthquake, wealth of nations, and glory. Now let's zero in on those themes and take a look at their immediate historical fulfillment in the second temple. Take a look. As we examine these three themes, I want you to see how they are, in a sense, fulfilled in the second temple. The same temple that the Jews were saying, oh, it's not as beautiful as the first. Haggai says, you just wait. You just wait. Take a look at some of the historical fulfillments here. First, let's examine the wealth of the nations. How, is this prof- how did the wealth of the nations come to the second temple? Here's a few things to consider. First, King Cyrus and King Darius, and I might also add King Artaxerxes a hundred years later, these kings of Persia provided Persian tax revenues to build the second temple. The wealth of the nations, the desirable things of the nations would come to the second temple. Moreover, in 19 BC, Herod the Great, the same Herod who tried to have the Christ child killed, beautified the temple. He threw a whole bunch of money in it. Why? Probably for political reasons. But nevertheless, the wealth of the, of the pagans, Herod was, was technically a Jew, but nevertheless a pagan. He was not a follower of Yahweh. And so the wealth of the nations are being brought and, be, and beautifying and building up the temple. Now there are other examples of this between 520 BC and the time of Christ that we could list, but these are just a couple. Now, secondly, what about glory? How did the second temple experience glory? Who was dedicated in the second temple? Jesus was. That's right, Bill. Thank you. Jesus was dedicated in the second temple, friends. The temple that the Jews were building and saying, oh, look at this. It's pathetic. It's not nearly as good as the first. Haggai says, you just wait. Glory is coming to this temple. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming to this temple. The Savior of all the world is coming to this temple. And He will fill this house with glory. Jesus was dedicated in the temple according to the Gospel of Luke. Secondly, Jesus preached and healed in the second temple. Friends, He brought the good news of salvation. He brought healing, physical healing, and spiritual healing to all the nations. This second temple, friends, was filled with a measure of glory that was greater and exceeded the first. Now finally, what about an earthquake? Anybody remember what happened at Jesus' death? The ground shook. At Jesus' death, there was an earthquake that shook the second temple. It tore the veil of the temple in half. Cosmic disturbances. Now friends, we look at these immediate historical fulfillments. And we say, well, that is a fulfillment. Okay, that is a fulfillment of what Haggai was saying would happen. Go to the the graphic again here. That is a fulfillment of what the second temple, what happened in the second temple. There was wealth, there was glory, there was earthquakes, there was cosmic disturbance. But friends, if we're being honest and we're looking at the text a little more closely, 
we see some very compelling language there. We see some language there that suggests that there's going to be an unbelievable and exceeding amount of wealth coming to this temple. We see some language that suggests there's going to be an an abundant and magnificent measure of glory like never seen before. We see some language in verses 6 to 9 that suggests this earthquake is going to shake and rattle all of heaven and all of earth. And so the second temple fulfillment is indeed a fulfillment of Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 to 9. But there is more to it than just that. Haggai's looking past it. The Lord is looking past it. He is looking to the final temple of God in the millennial kingdom. Zechariah. We're going to be turning to Zechariah in just a moment. Before we do, Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai. Zechariah was a contemporary prophet prophesying during the same time as Haggai. Notice the correspondence of language between Haggai 2 and Zechariah 14. Take a look. Zechariah 14, verses 3 to 4. Zechariah prophesying to the same people group at the same time. Then Then the Lord will go forth and will fight against those nations. He's speaking of the final battle here. As he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half toward the south. Friends, I submit to you, there's nothing else that can be happening here but a great and cataclysmic earthquake. Zechariah 14, verse 14. Judah is going to fight at Jerusalem. They're going to fight against the enemies of God. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel, in great abundance. In an abundant and magnificent way, the wealth of all the nations will come to Jerusalem to its millennial and final temple, the wealth of the nations will be brought on the last and final day of the Lord. Haggai mentions shaking in chapter 2, verses 6 to 7. Zechariah mentions an earthquake in 14.4. Haggai mentions treasures, gold and silver from all the nations being brought to the temple in verses 7 and 8. Zechariah mentions wealth, gold and silver from all nations being brought to Jerusalem in verse 14 of chapter 14. And so we encounter two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, prophesying to the same people in the same city during the same time frame Each prophetic book uses similar themes of earthquake and the bringing in of wealth. Friends, we would be foolish. We would be foolish not to associate these prophecies with one another. And if we are to find association between these two portions of the Old Testament, then the word of the Lord given to Haggai in chapter 2, verses 6 to 9, does not merely concern the second temple. But it is also written with a view to the final temple of God in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. I want to show you one more. And this, this one blows my mind. Turn to Isaiah chapter 60. Take a look behind me. And I've, I've pieced together again selections, but take a look at the context yourself. Notice what it says. This is about the final, final day of the Lord. 
The glory of the Lord is risen upon you, Jerusalem. The Gentiles shall come to your light. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you, Jerusalem. They shall bring gold and incense. They shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. And I will glorify the house of my glory. I will beautify my temple. Therefore, your gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day or night, that men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. For the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you shall perish. And those nations shall be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, Jerusalem, the cypress, the pine, and the box tree together to beautify the place of my sanctuary. Friends, what correspondence of language? What similarity of terminology and themes? Those who undermine the Scriptures by saying, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. Oh, the Bible's just, you know, you never know where you're at in it and it's just a bunch of hogwash. I see a crystal clear message being spoken here. I see crystal clear themes being spoken here. I see terminology and language that is repeated in the same context, in the same time period. And I say that's not accident. That's not happenstance. What is being said here is going to take place. This is going to happen when Christ returns. There will be a final temple of God. The wealth of all the nations will come to it. Glory will fill it. And Messiah Jesus Christ will reign and rule in it. Verses 6 to 8 again. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it's only a little while, I'm going to shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land. I'm going to shake all nations, and the desirable things of all the nations shall come. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. And Haggai goes on to mention that it's, there's going to be a final measure of glory and peace that comes to this temple. Take a look at verse 9. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Friends, again, on an immediate historical level, 520 B.C. level, on that immediate level, the glory of the second temple did in fact exceed that of the first. Though the second temple was not as elaborate as the first, it was the place where the Savior of the world would be dedicated. It was the place where the good news of salvation would be proclaimed. It was the place where a new era of hope, peace, and prosperity, health and healing, reconciliation, would be ushered in to the world through Jesus Christ. That second temple saw that day. Don't trust your eyes. Trust the Lord. Don't trust your eyes when you see something weak and insignificant. When you see a temple that's half built, not as good as the first. Don't trust your eyes. Trust the Lord. He seems to delight in working through insignificant and weak things of this world. And with a view to the future, the glory of the final temple of God will yet exceed all those before it. Jesus Christ, friends, will rule and reign from it. The nations will worship God in it. And in that millennium, there will be a period of peace like no other in all the history of the world. The curse will be lifted. The lion will lay down with the lamb. 
We will beat our swords into plowshares, and Jesus Christ will bring peace and reign in glory. I, I, uh, I hope you've hung in there with me today, because today's message uh, was not an easy one, admittedly, uh, for me, actually, to study and prepare for. But there is a lot of richness to this text here. There's a lot behind it, a lot to learn from. I want to offer you some application uh, just to walk away with. What can we learn from first in application? And it's coming in just a moment. There we are. Application first. It's okay that Haggai 2.7 is not a prophecy of the coming Messiah. There are plenty of others. I want to say that very clearly. I want to say that very plainly. It's okay. It's okay. We don't need to walk out of here going, my goodness. My Bible's wrong, or my, you know, my New King James translation, I, I don't know if I can trust it. No, it, it, it was an interpretation of some. I, I think the interpretation is incorrect. I think it's the desirable things of all the nations are coming. A multiplicity of wealth is coming. And we shouldn't twist Scripture just to make it say what it doesn't say. I admit, I could be wrong here. The vast majority of Bible scholars could be wrong here. But nevertheless, we need to do due diligence to keep Scripture in context and not throw in a messianic prophecy when it's not there. Two, Israel grew discouraged when the second temple was second rate in their eyes. So too, we can become very discouraged when things aren't the way they used to be. But God's encouragement to them is also helpful for us. Every single time He says, I am with you, keep building. I'm with you, keep building. Don't worry about the good old days, friends. If you are discouraged today, whether it's your work, your marriage relationship, relationship with your kids, frustrated at the church, frustrated that you have an illness, if you're looking back and remembering the good old days and you're bemoaning your current state, friends, don't stay there. Don't remain in that state. The Holy Spirit of God is with you who believe in Jesus Christ for everlasting life. And He says, keep going. Keep building. I use weakness. I use what you think is insignificant. I especially like to show my glory in things that you don't think are admirable or praiseworthy. Third and finally, God promised Israel that the seemingly insignificant temple they were building would ultimately become a significant place of glory. Keep building and let God bring the blessing in due time. That is so true, friends. I say again, don't Trust your eyes. Trust the Lord. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for this very special study today, Lord. Um, I know I labored through this one, Father. I know that You were with me as I was studying Your Word and, and trying to help find a way to communicate it. And yet, Lord, I think you've brought us through this and you've helped us to see your word clearly. Lord, help us to learn from Israel. Help us to learn from their mistakes. May we not get discouraged if we see something that is second rate in our own lives or in the life of the church or whatever it is. May we not remember the good old days, Father, but may we focus on what is ahead of us, what is before us today. May we keep building, keep going, knowing that your presence is with us. Father, may we also pay close attention to interpreting your word. May we not take it out of context just to throw in a prophecy. Father, there are plenty of prophecies about your son, Jesus Christ, and we are grateful for them. 
But we pray today, Lord, that our interpretation of your word was correct, that it would build us up.